Let's take a Bible and open it this morning. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 5 in the Old Testament. We're going to continue in our study of the life of David, that great man of God. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing a copy that we have for you? Right on the back of the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 217, page 217 to begin this morning, or 2 Samuel 5 in your copy of the Bible. Now, when you hear the name Donald Trump, what comes to mind? Maybe money or power or just wealth. I mean, the man, you know, had some stuff. I mean, at one time, he, his net worth was estimated at $3 billion. His book, The Art of the Deal, sold well over a million copies. He had three opulent homes, including a 50-room penthouse in Manhattan, complete with an indoor waterfall. He had a personal 727 jet, a personal $8 million Super Puma French-built helicopter. He had a $30 million yacht called the Trump Princess. He owned his own airline called the Trump Shuttle. And in addition to the upkeep on all of these items, Trump had a personal spending allowance of $500,000 a month. A month with which he bought suits that cost $2,000 each and lunches that routinely ran into four figures. But oh my, how the world turns, huh? You know, the only thing, when I think of Donald Trump, the only thing I think of, I don't think of all this, I think of his arrogance. The only thing bigger than his assets was his arrogance. And uh, one, he said in his book, The Art of the Deal, bankers now come to me to ask if I might be interested in borrowing their money. They know a safe bet when they see it. End of quote. Well, we all watched a couple of years ago as Donald Trump self-destructed and lost everything, all of these things that I've named off. And if you asked me why this happened to him, I would tell you it was because of that arrogance. Arrogance always brings people low. God says in the Bible, Proverbs 29, arrogance will always bring a person down. And, and this kind of arrogance is not limited to Donald Trump. I mean, we see it in the sports world with trash talk and, and boxing speak. We see it right here in Washington in the world of politics. I mean, there is an epidemic of arrogance in Washington, D.C. Well, we see it in our offices, in our families. We see it in our schools. And, and this is what we want to talk about today because in our passage, we're going to watch as arrogance brings down a group of people... And we're going to want to talk then based on their example about uh, what God says to you and me about arrogance and how we can guard our life from it. So let's look together. Second Samuel chapter five. A little bit of background. Remember, King Saul has been killed in battle. His only surviving son, Ishbosheth, is now dead. And so David has now become the king of Israel. There's nobody to stand in his way. And the very first act he undertakes is to go capture the city of Jerusalem and make it his capital. And so that's where we pick up the story. Verse 6. And the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Now let's stop there for just a second. Do you remember back when, when Joshua invaded the promised land? Uh, he took most of the land, but one of the places he was not able to take was Jerusalem. And so for the last 400 years leading up to this time, Jerusalem has existed as a hostile enclave within Israel. Run, live, the Jebusites live there. And David set his sights on Jerusalem to make it his capital for three reasons. One, it lay exactly on the border between the northern states, uh, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So it was a nice neutral site 
site to set up a capital. Number two, it had a wonderful water supply, the Gihon Spring, which ran even when the rest of the land was in complete drought. There was water in Jerusalem. And third, because since it was set high on the hills the way it is, it was an easily defensible city. And so David said, I'm going to go take Jerusalem. So he sets off to do it. Let's read verse 6. The rest of it, it says, And the Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. For they thought David could never get in here. In other words, they brought the blind people and the lame people out onto the ramparts of the city. And they said, David, even if there was nobody defending this city but crippled people, you couldn't get in here. But it says... Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. How did he do it? Verse 8, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. I'll talk to you more about that in a second. But they used the water shaft in the city to do it. Now, verse 9. And David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. And he built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Verse 11. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, which was a Phoenician city, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons. And they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. Not he himself, but the Lord has established him and had exalted his kingdom. You know, uh, archaeology has done a wonderful job of confirming the events that we read about in this passage over the last hundred years. For example, uh, so far 55 of these supporting terraces that are mentioned in verse 9 have been found in archaeological digs dating back to the time of David. And what these were is they were ways of leveling out the ground between the hills. Remember I told you Jerusalem is built on a group of hills. And these terraces level out the ground between so that you can build houses. And so that you can build other buildings. We found 55 of them so far, just like the Bible says. Second of all, Kathleen Kenyon, the very famous archaeologist, excavated a building from the time of David that she is convinced, and so are the other archaeologists who've looked at it, that this is the palace of David that the Bible's talking about here. And let me tell you something really interesting. She found columns there. Uh, they're laying down, obviously, they're, you know, in ruins, but they're columns still there that correspond design to columns that we know were used at the same time by the Phoenicians. And, and doesn't that make sense? Hiram, who was a Phoenician, who sent his workers there to build a palace. Well, if you're a Phoenician construction person and you're going to build a palace, you're going to build it the way you know how to build a palace, which is the way Phoenicians build a palace. Isn't it interesting that we found columns there that match exactly the way Phoenicians build columns? Very interesting. Third thing. Third thing is that this water shaft that was referred to here in the passage by which David got in the city was discovered in 1867 by the British archaeologist Sir Charles Warren. Today it is called Warren's Shaft. Makes sense, right? 
And what it is, it's a, it's a shaft, it's a little uh, um, a tunnel through solid rock by which people could get out of the city to the Gihon Spring, to the water supply for the city. If there was an army surrounding the city and besieging the city, it was a secret way they could get out and get water and get back in without the army ever seeing them. It's dug right through solid rock. It's an unbelievable engineering feat. And we found it just the way the Bible says. Isn't it interesting that the more we dig out of the ground, the more the Bible turns out to be right every time. But the real point of this passage, folks, is not archaeology. The real point of this passage is arrogance. The arrogance of these Jebusites who were so sure of themselves, so confident of themselves, that they march all the lame and the blind people up and they taunt David and they mock David and they say, you couldn't get in here if nothing but crippled people were defending this city. But you know, their arrogance was their undoing. Because in their arrogance, they got careless. In their arrogance, they failed to guard this water shaft. And we know that the water shaft is so so small that barely one person can wiggle through it at a time. If they had put just a light guard there, just a few people there, there's no way David could have gotten in. But they were so arrogant and so confident that they were invincible and invulnerable that they didn't even bother to guard it. And David sneaked a little SEAL team in there and they went over and opened the front gate. And before you knew it, man, you know, the city fell. You say, well, man, that's too bad they had that water shaft. Friends, the problem was not the water shaft. The problem was their arrogance. Their arrogance led them to get sloppy. Their arrogance led them to leave their flank exposed. And as always happens, their arrogance brought them down. Now, that's the end of the passage, but of course, it leads us to ask the really important question. You know what this is. Now, you're not going to have a chance to say this for a couple weeks, so get it out of your system. What is this question? Wonderful. So what? Lon, I feel sorry for the Jebusites. I feel bad that tunnel was there for them. You know, it's too bad, but this doesn't have one thing to do with my life. I think it does, friends. I think the the example here of arrogance has a lot to do with our lives. And I want to talk to you about what God has to say to you and me about arrogance and how we can insulate our lives. First of all, I looked up arrogance in the dictionary. Now, we all know what it is, but I thought it'd be good to get a definition. Here's what it said. It said, arrogance is to be overly sure of yourself, to be insolently self-confident, to be defiantly cocky. That's arrogance. And the reason arrogance is dangerous, there's two reasons why I want to share with you that it's dangerous. For the first one, would you turn with me to the book of Proverbs in your Bible? Proverbs chapter 16, and if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's on uh, page 460. Page 460, Proverbs chapter 16, if you would. And here's the first reason why arrogance is so dangerous. Reason number one is because arrogance leads us to do self-destructive things, stupid things that cause us to self-destruct. Look what it says right here, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit before fall. Now, can we, put, can we run this in, in rewind? If you rewind it, it says, every time a person falls, you can look back and find an arrogant spirit behind it. Every time a person self-destructs, you can be sure that there was arrogant pride behind it. And, and that's, that's what the Bible tells us, and it's true. 
uh, uh, there's a very interesting book out by Harvard Medical School psychologist Stephen Berglas. The name of the book is called The Success Syndrome. And in this book, Dr. Berglas analyzes some of the most self-destructive people in our modern world. People like Donald Trump. Leona Helmsley, Howard Hughes, Dennis Levine, Gary Hart, Imelda Marcos, Jimmy Swagger, Jim Baker, Ivan Betsky, Michael Milken, Pete Rose. You say, yep, Lon, that is the crash and burn starting lineup. Okay, you're right. Now, listen to what he finds. And I quote now. He said, the number one core attribute of people who achieve stellar success without having the psychological bedrock to prevent personal disaster. Wait a minute now, hear what he's saying. He's saying the one thing that everybody has in common when they reach stellar success, but then they don't have what it takes to keep from self-destructing, back to the quote, is arrogance. End of quote. Isn't it wonderful that Harvard Med School is finally catching up with God? Isn't that wonderful? God's been saying that for 30 centuries. That this is the way it is. Harvard Med School just realized it. Wonderful. And, and friends, the reason that arrogance leads us to self-destruct is because arrogance makes us begin to think we're invulnerable. It, it begins to make us think that we're invincible. It begins to make us think that we're stronger and safer than we really are. It begins to make us think that the rules are for everybody else, but they're not for us. And that's a sure formula for self-destruction. We drop our guard. And as any boxer knows, when you drop your guard, you're going to get decked. And there are thousands of people, thousands of people in the ditch today who didn't mean to go in the ditch. They didn't try to go in the ditch, but they got arrogant and they got sloppy. And man, they got shot right out the saddle. I want to take a little survey, okay? And this is a raise your hand survey. How many of you here went to high school? All right, good. Now, if you did, then I'm sure you can remember all the details of the French and Indian War, right? You can't? No? All right, well, let me fill you in. The French and Indian War. Remember, the French were here in the United States, or were here in America anyway. They owned most of Canada, most of the Great Lakes region. Their capital was at Quebec. And when the war broke out between the British and the French, uh, one of the goals of the British was to capture Quebec, the capital of the French Empire here in the New World. Well, the, the British, under General James Wolfe, tried to figure out how to take this city. The, the city was almost impregnable, at least that's what it thought. The western side of the city is built on this enormous cliff that goes right down to the See. And General Montcalm, the French general who was in charge of the city, tried to convince the governor of Canada to let him put troops on the west side of the city to guard the cliff. The governor of Canada arrogantly said, there is no way any army can ever get up that cliff. I can't afford the troops over there and I'm not going to put one troop there. And he wouldn't let General Montcalm do it. On September the 12th, 1759, 5,000 British soldiers climbed that cliff between the time the sun went down and the time the sun came up. And when dawn hit, there were 5,000 British troops standing on the top of that hill, and the city of Quebec fell in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And so with it fell the French Empire here in America. You say, what sunk that general? What sunk that city? It was arrogance. 
And every time I think of that story, you say, Lon, come on now, honestly, how often do you think of that story? Well, every time I think of the French and the Indian War, I think of the story. And every time I think of the French and Indian War and I think of that story, I think of people in our world today who are just like that. They got a huge cliff in their life that's completely exposed, but in their arrogance they say, I don't need to worry about it, I'm bigger than that, I can handle it, I don't need to be concerned, and boom, boy, out the saddle you go. Why is arrogance dangerous? Reason number one, because it leads us to self-destruct. Reason number two is found in Isaiah 42. And I wonder if you turn there with me. Isaiah 42, it's page 514 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 514. And here's reason number two. Arrogance puts us on a collision course with Almighty God. Arrogance puts us on a collision course with God. You say, why is that? Well, look what it says here, Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my glory to anyone. See, friends, the basis of arrogance is self-glory. The basis of arrogance is turning the spotlight on self. The basis of arrogance is exalting self and having confidence in self and believing in self and claiming the credit for self. That's the foundation of arrogance. God says, wait a minute, I am the Lord and I'm not sharing the glory in this world with anybody and I take it personally when somebody tries to lay their hands on my glory. This is a major issue with God. You remember when Isaiah in chapter 6 saw God? What did the angel cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of whose glory? His glory, not ours. And, and the 23rd Psalm, we all know the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And, but, but it goes on to say, He leads me in, uh, in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, God does. He leads me down the path of righteousness. Why does God do all of this? So you can be happy, so we can be content, so we can be fulfilled, so we can live in leisure? That isn't what it says. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake, for His glory. Folks, all that God does and all that God is is aimed at bringing Him the credit and the glory in this world. It might seem egotistical for Him to be this way, but if you are the creator, the sustainer, the owner, and the sole proprietor of the universe, this is not an egotistical thing. It's appropriate. And God takes it personally when anybody tries to infringe on his glory and when anyone tries to put the spotlight on themselves instead of God. And, and when arrogance drives a person to do this, I'm telling you, it's like standing on the tracks and the train's coming and you're going to get nailed. God's going to teach you a lesson. I mean, think, Pharaoh did this. Remember back in Moses' day? I, I'm the final authority. I'm Egypt. I'm the top dog. And he said in Exodus 5, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I recognize no Lord but me, he says, and I will not let Israel go so there. And, and you know how this ended. You saw the movie. This was a nasty ending. And then there was Goliath. Goliath said, hey, I'm the king of the hill. I'm top dog. There's no other God out here but me, David. My, my armor weighs 125 pounds. My spear weighs 25 pounds. And there ain't no God on this hill but me, son. And if you don't believe it, you just keep on coming and I'm going to slice you up and feed you to the birds for lunch. Well, guess who the birds ate? 
not David. And then there was Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. He said one time, when you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. He said that. Well, you know, I have to say, and I mean this sincerely, it is tragic and it is sad to say this, but I don't think it's that hard for Muhammad Ali to be humble today because he's got Parkinson's disease and he can barely walk and he can't even talk. I'm telling you, when you decide you're going to claim the glory, you're on the tracks and the train's coming. God's going to not share his glory with anybody. And if you and I arrogantly try to put our hands on it, God's going to teach us a lesson, even as Christians. And sometimes as Christians, maybe to a much smaller scale, we do what Pharaoh did, we do what Goliath did. And you know, it forces God to teach us a lesson as Christians. And even though God is merciful, friends, getting hit by a merciful train still hurts. I mean, ask me, I know. I've been hit by them, and it still hurts. This is not a smart thing to do. And may I say, uh, take a moment and say, if you're here, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and never trusted what He's done for you on the cross, you know, I've thought many times why people don't do this. It seems like a such, such a great deal to me. Why doesn't everybody do this? Uh, my opinion is, arrogance lies at the core of why people don't do this. People say, hey, I don't need anybody's help. I can handle this myself. Uh, I can do it. I'll work it out. I, I can earn my way into heaven. Now, I don't need somebody to come alongside me and assist me. I got everything under control just fine, thank you. Well, that sounds like arrogance to me. And the problem is... When we let that kind of arrogance keep us from embracing what Christ did for us on the cross, friends, we put ourselves on a collision course with God with our eternal destiny at stake. Now, these are high stakes here. And I want to, I want to challenge you, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, to think about what you're doing. Your goal is not to be on a collision course with God when it comes to eternity. Your goal is to be in partnership with God when it comes to eternity. And the way you do that is by humbling yourself and embracing Jesus and admitting you do need help. I hope you'll think about that. Well, let's summarize. Why is arrogance dangerous? Two reasons. Number one, it causes us to self-destruct. And number two, it puts us on a collision course with God. You say, okay, Lon, if I accept that, give me some things that I can do to insulate my life, to protect my life from arrogance. I'd love to do that. I've got three quick ones to give you. Number one, number one, be in the Word of God on a regular basis. Be in the Word of God on a regular basis. You know, I went to high school, Woodrow Wilson High School, Portsmouth, Virginia, and I graduated number four in my high school class. I got 1440 on my college boards and went off to the University of North Carolina thinking I was a stud. I mean, I did. You know what I found when I got to UNC in Chapel Hill? I found out there were a lot more studs around than I ever realized. And they were all there. There were a lot more smart people around than I ever knew. See, I was comparing myself to the wrong standard. I was comparing myself to my little high school in Portsmouth, Virginia. Suddenly, when my standard got enlarged significantly, I looked a lot smaller. Now, folks, that's the way it works in terms of being in the Word of God. When we start comparing ourselves to the God of the universe as our standard, it is not hard for you to feel smaller about yourself. It'll happen automatically, believe me. And where do you find out who this God is so you can use Him as a standard to humble yourself? Well, the only place you find out about Him is here in the Bible where He explains Himself to you. You don't have to try to get humble as you begin to understand who God is. The more you and I understand who God really is, believe me, it will not be a problem for us to see ourselves as being smaller. 
Second of all, my second suggestion is that you start out every day reminding yourself that everything you are, everything you have, everything you've ever achieved and everything you ever will achieve is by the grace of God. And you didn't do any of it. And David had that attitude. You remember what we read in verse 12 back in 2 Samuel? The Bible says, And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. Not himself, but the Lord. He recognized that. He said, But Lon, hold on a second, just a second. I turned that company around. God didn't do that. I did that. Uh, I, I got those grades. God didn't get those grades. I got those grades. I bid the contract. I completed the project. I won the election. God didn't do any of that. You know, I talk to people in business and industry all the time, and you know what, you know what I hear them say so often? And that is that, that success is often suspended on the narrowest of margins. That if one little tiny thing at the wrong time would have gone the wrong way, instead of being a success today, they'd be a miserable failure. That success often is suspended on the narrowest of threads. So let me ask you something, my successful friend. What if some of those small items that had gone your way had gone the other way, where would you be today? You say, well, I'm a smart person. I would have compensated. Well, that's good. Um, what, what if your heart had stopped? You smart enough to compensate for that? And who do you think kept your heart beating? Not you. And who do you think gave you the talents you used to get where you are? Not you. And who do you think opened the opportunities that allowed you to be where you are today? Not you. And who do you think caused all the clickers to click in just the way they are so you're where you are today? Not you. Not you. Who gave you the brain that you have that works so well? Not you. Who gave you the physical health you had so you can go out and do this? Not you. You used all these things, but who gave them to you? That's why I love what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you brag as though you didn't? You know, I think it's a wonderful thing to wake up every morning and walk out the house and say, God, the only reason I've got this car, got this house, got this job, got this opportunity, got these clothes, got my health, and got a brain that can work is because of your grace. And so, Lord, help me go out today and not take the credit for myself. It's not about me, God. It's about you. Thank you for your goodness. It's about you, God. It's a good exercise to go through every morning. It helps. Number three, and finally... If you want to help insulate your life against arrogance, get into the Word of God regularly. Compare yourself to the right standard. Number two, remind yourself every day that everything you've got is from God. And number three, and finally, get real about your mortality. You know, I'm Lord willing, I'm leaving to go to Israel with 150 people this afternoon. And uh, I was over there a couple of years ago, actually, when uh, I was in Jerusalem on the day when Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated in Tel Aviv. And I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a disaster. I mean, you know, here you got a world leader assassinated, you know, I mean, I just kind of held my breath thinking, oh, my, what is going to happen? You know what happened the next day? They had two minutes of silence at noon and then the world kept right on going. Just kept right on going, business as usual. I mean, the world stopped long enough to hiccup for him and then kept right on going. Now, I got some bad news for you and me. When we leave, the world is not even going to stop long enough to hiccup. 
The world's not even going to burp, folks. It's just going to keep right on going. And if that's true, then how important really are you and I? Huh? I mean, really. God's going to keep the world going. He's the important component, not you and me. And, um, you know, you and I are leaving. So how important are we really? Paul again said this, Romans 12, verse 3. I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but use sober judgment. In other words, Paul says, don't ever estimate yourself. The world's not burping when you leave. So stay humble. Three ways you can insulate your life against arrogance. Get in the Word of God. Get a standard that's worth comparing yourself to Almighty God. You'll get smaller. Number two, every day remind yourself that everything you've got was a gift from Almighty God. You didn't do it. And third, get real about your mortality. Remember, you're leaving and the world's not slowing down when you do. Now, the Bible says this. It says, God brings down the arrogant... But he exalts the humble. God brings down the arrogant, but he exalts the humble. That's the eternal formula of God. And you know, it's your choice which side of that formula you want to get on. I can't make the choice for you. That's your choice. But it seems to me that that a smart person gets on the humble side of that equation. Because the humble side of that equation says God exalts the humble. seems to me only a very foolish person gets on the arrogant side of that equation. Because the Bible says God brings them down. And may God help you and me to let the Word of God change the way we live today. May God grant that we make it our goal to get on the humble side of that formula so God can lift us up when He's ready. Let's pray. Father, we live in a town where arrogance is an epidemic, out of control. And my prayer is that you would help us not to listen to the world shouting in our ears. Exalt yourself. Lift up yourself. Promote yourself. Brag about yourself. But that we would listen to the still, small voice of God saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now that doesn't mean we're mealy-mouthed and it doesn't mean that we're timid and it doesn't mean that we're afraid. It just means that we understand what we are and we understand what you are. We understand everything we have is a gift from you. We didn't do it. And we understand one day we're leaving and the world's not even going to slow down. And we're just grateful to be your servants. So Lord Jesus, send us out into our community to be humble men and women of God. And based on that platform, to be able to share you with people who look and go, why are you living like this? And how can you be where you are, living the way you live? Lord, help us then be able to tell them about you. Change our life by what we've heard here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.